So we're picking up in Luke chapter 20, verse 19. Um, the, the setting here is this is the last week before going to the cross for Jesus. This passage takes place on Tuesday of Passion Week with the cross coming up on Friday and the resurrection coming up on Sunday. And so we'll read today's passage and then we'll actually spend this Sunday and next Sunday unpacking this one passage because the implications for it are so relevant and so important for us. So Luke 20, starting in verse 19, It says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So things are are heating up here. Jesus has been speaking some hard words against the the rulers of the temple, which is making them angrier and angrier. And so in verse 19, um, it says that the scribes, the chief priests, the temple leaders want to lay hands on Jesus. And this doesn't mean that they want to ordain him. Um, This means that they want to kill him. So they're they're starting to seek to kill Jesus. The, The forces of evil here are ramping up, which could be expected, because think about what Jesus is going to accomplish this week. I mean, this Friday, he's going to go to be crucified to put to death the sin of anyone who would ever believe in him. He's going to love beyond any love that's ever been expressed. He's going to go to the cross to be our substitute. He's going to seal the fate of Satan and sin and death. And then on Sunday, he's going to rise and and conquer the grave. So this is going to be a productive week for him. And Martin Luther said that where God built the church, there there the devil would also build a a chapel. And so anytime you see the work of God, you also see the work of the enemy ramping up. Anytime you see the work of God where amazing things are happening, you also see very strong opposition. So don't take the presence of opposition to the gospel, of opposition to the church, of opposition to Christ to mean that God has somehow departed and isn't doing his work anymore. Don't let hard times serving Jesus ever convince you that you shouldn't be serving Jesus because when God is doing his best work, so is the enemy. And so the enemy here hatches a plan. The leaders have already been kind of put to open shame by the wise words of Jesus, so now they try to undo him from behind the scenes. So verse 20 again, it says, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So it says that they watched him. Three times in Luke, it talks about how the religious leaders watched Jesus. And this is never good. It's never that they're trying to watch him to learn from him. It's that they're always trying to watch him so that they can nail him for something. In Luke chapter 6, they watched him to see if he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. In Luke 14, they were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man with dropsy on the Sabbath. These are not objective observers. These are not people who are watching him to learn. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble. And so it says that they sent spies. And these spies are literally those who lie in wait, those who lurk. They're always lurkers 
around the work of God, even in our day. They pretend to be sincere, but they're eager to tear down. And you know them because they don't build anything. They, they only tear down. They criticize, but don't construct. And it's easy to be them because it's so easy to tear things down and so hard to build things up. But anywhere that you see that people are building a ministry, building a church, building a family, there are lurkers that, that rise up. And they pretend to be sincere asking questions, just, just pretend to be helpful, but by their fruits, you know them. And so these lurkers are here to trap Jesus in his words. They're hoping to get him arrested by the Romans so that the Jewish leaders can get Jesus arrested but not be blamed for it. And so I think for us to get this passage and know what's going on, we have to understand at least a little bit of their politics. Um, the, the Roman Empire had made Israel their territory. Emperor Pompey had conquered Jerusalem in 63 BC and had ruled over Israel from Rome ever since. Now, at this time, Tiberius Caesar was the Roman emperor. He was a king over a huge empire, and that empire included Israel as one of his territories. Now, underneath Tiberius, he had a couple layers of authority. He had Herod the king. He had Pontius Pilate, a military governor. And then they delegated their power to rule to the Jewish high priest Caiaphas. And so Caiaphas, in, in Jerusalem, he's the day-to-day -day ruler of Israel. And his whole job is to keep peace for Rome. Rome rules the whole place, and Rome had told Caiaphas that he can continue to run the place, he can continue to have the temple, they can continue to have their worship, but the big condition is these people cannot rise up. We, we can't have a Jewish rebellion on our hands. And so Caiaphas' job was to try to keep the people calm, maintain peace for Rome, make sure they were paying their taxes, doing the, the things they were supposed to do, so that Rome wouldn't come in and take away their temple. So, so that was his job. And this was really difficult because the Jews hated this Roman occupation. These Jews had a right to self-rule. And more than any other nation before or since, God had actually given them their land. He had given it to them in writing in the inspired word of God in the Bible. So they had an inspired deed to the property that was given to them by God. And no other nation has ever had that. God said that the land was theirs that they ruled themselves under God, but Rome didn't care what their Bible said, and they were running the place. So this frustrated the Jews. There, there was a group of nationalistic Jews called the Zealots who kept staging rebellions against Rome. And it was actually a pretty big group of people. Jesus even had one of the Zealots in his 12 disciples. Simon the Zealot was, was one of them. Um, they were the people who at a moment's notice would rebel. They, they wanted to get Rome out of there. So you have Caesar as the king, Caiaphas is the Jewish high priest and the day-to-day -day ruler of Israel, and it's a super uncomfortable relationship. It's a really unpleasant time politically. It's a powder keg. If ever there was a powder keg, and just the slightest little spark could cause those zealots to rebel again. So again, Caiaphas doesn't want a rebellion. He doesn't want trouble. And, and if, if there was trouble, if they did rebel, then Rome could come in and get rid of Caiaphas. They could say, you don't get to rule here anymore. So he could lose his power. They could lose their temple. There was so much on the line. He just wanted peace and quiet. But he also didn't like Jesus because the crowds loved Jesus. It was, it was undermining their authority to, take, to teach the word of God. And so they're looking for some way that they can take Jesus out without making it look like they were the ones that took Jesus out. So, so their plan 
is, is to try to trap Jesus in some anti-Roman speech. They're going to try to get him to say some stuff that could get him in trouble with Rome, and then Pontius Pilate could come and take out Jesus, and when that happens, then the Jewish leaders could wash their hands of the whole thing and say, hey, it wasn't us, it was Rome. They, they did this, don't be mad at us, continue to obey us, continue to submit to us, continue to do what we say. So that's their plan. So they send in the spies, in come the, the lurkers, and they begin with flattery in verse 21. It says, so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, everything that they say here is true, but they're totally insincere. Jesus does teach rightly. Jesus doesn't show any partiality. He doesn't show any favoritism. He, he doesn't teach one thing to one group and another thing to another group. He's not trying to make everybody happy. He's a straight shooter. He teaches the ways of God. This is all true, but these people don't believe a word that they're saying. And we know that because if they really believed that all these things were true of Jesus, then he surely wouldn't respond to their flattery. Their flattery wouldn't work if these things that they were saying about him were true. He would see right through it. But they flatter him because they don't believe in him. So these are insincere worshipers. And Cody showed us in last week's passage the insincerity of some questioners, that sometimes we know the answer to a question, but we just keep saying we don't know the answer because we don't want to respond to the truth that we know. And now Jesus is being assaulted by these insincere worshipers with their insincere praise. And so you have Jesus, who's the true and sincere one, and he's assaulted constantly by insincerity. Where God built a church there, the devil would also build a chapel. There's always opposition. Where there's a gospel, there's a counter gospel. There's a false gospel. Where there's a savior, there's an alternative to the savior being presented somewhere nearby, and there's opposition to his salvation. So the lurkers pose a question. Verse 22, they say, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So they asked Jesus if it's okay for them to pay the tribute tax or the poll tax that they had to pay to Tiberius Caesar. They're saying, are we allowed to pay this or would it be sinning? Is it lawful for us to, to pay that tax? Now this tax was a very specific one that added insult to injury. This was a tax that went directly to Caesar and Caesar didn't require this tax of his Roman citizens. He required this tax of conquered people. So to pay this tax was to acknowledge every single year that you had been conquered by this Roman nation that had no right to be in your country. They had totally, totally illegitimate rule. So all the conquered people, everybody who was conquered by Rome paid the tax. This was a tax that was initiated by Pompey who conquered Israel in 63 BC and he was a brutal guy. He treated the Jews brutally. So every time they paid that tax, they were reminded of that. This tax funded the Roman rule over the Jews. And throughout their history, there had been rebellion that centered around this specific tax. There was actually one of those zealots named Judas Galileus, who, when Jesus was a kid, rebelled over this tax. He, he came in and he said, no, this is God's country. No taxes should be paid to Caesar. We're not paying those taxes at all. And scripture doesn't say much of what happened to him. It just says in Acts chapter 4 that he perished. So it, it didn't work. 
And so again and again, there were rebellions about this tax specifically, so, so they hated it. This was a heated issue. They, they come to Jesus and they ask him this question, but they're not throwing him a softball question. On top of that, they know that this question can divide the followers of Jesus because they're political parties that have very different views on this tax specifically. The Sadducees said, we, we don't like Rome, but Rome is our government, so we pay the tax. The Zealots, who probably made up much of the crowd that was worshiping Jesus at this point, they really didn't want to pay it, and they were ready to fight. They were so mad about it. Then you also had the Pharisees, and they were mostly indifferent to the state. They were synagogue rulers, and the synagogues were meant to just kind of thrive uh, in foreign lands, and so, so they were just kind of used to this kind of thing. So they didn't say much about that tax at all. But this was a debated issue. This is a heated issue, one of, the, one of the biggest political issues of their day. And they're trying to force Jesus into an either-or statement to, to choose a side politically. And if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, then these crowds following him are probably going to disperse because they want a Messiah who's going to challenge Caesar and who's going to rescue them and, and liberate them. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax then the Roman soldiers will overhear that, and that'll sound like a little bit of Judas Galilee-style rebellion coming, and, and so they will come to arrest him. So this is a no-win situation. The trap is set. Verse 23, they didn't fool him, but he perceived their craftiness. Jesus sees right through these flatterers. He perceives their craftiness, and that word craftiness is a word that means willingness to do or say anything to gain an advantage. He's not fooled by these lurkers. So it says, he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus asked to see this coin. It's a, a denarius. It's a silver coin worth a day's wages. It was the coin that they used to pay the poll tax. I think we can show you a picture of that coin right there. And, and on the front of this coin, there's a bust of Tiberius Caesar. On the back is a picture of his mother, Julia, sitting on a throne of the gods. Uh, there's an inscription on the front that reads something like, Emperor Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So on the very front, it calls him the son of God. And then on the back, it says Pontifex Maximus, or high priest. So this coin is offensive to the Jews on every level. Now, it's not so offensive that they don't have some in their pocket. Like, like, they'll take it. Uh, they, they've got some. They're working with this. But this coin is the symbol of two things that they hate. It's a symbol of the authority of Caesar, and it's a symbol of the worship of Caesar. If you print money for a country, that means that you have authority. The one who's in authority establishes the currency, and every nation has their own currency. So to have to use the currency is to acknowledge the authority of Caesar over their nation, which they absolutely hate. They can't stand that. But then also right on the coin is the worship of Caesar. Rome not only didn't separate church and state, they didn't separate God and king. The king was the national god. Now the Jews, they didn't even like putting images of people on their coins at all because that was way too close to, to carving graven images. Their commandments said you aren't supposed to carve any kind of graven images to bow down to them. And now this coin that they have to use, that they have to pay, is, is a coin that has graven images of Caesar right on the coin. So they hate this. So they hand them the denarius 
And Jesus says, whose image is that? The word image here is the Greek word ikona, where we get our word icon. And they say, it's Caesar's. Verse 25, he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And this answer is so profound that in verse 26, it says they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And what Jesus said here has shaped societies and guided the Christian's relationship to government for the last 2,000 years. What he says here speaks to a ton of the political questions that we might have today. It lays out the way that we're supposed to live under governments that don't rule as we would want them to rule and don't worship the God that they should worship. And this is so defining for Christianity that hundreds of books have been written about this one statement of Jesus. And we won't do it justice, but we will spend the rest of today and next week unpacking some of the implications of this answer that Jesus gives. Because this doesn't only answer the question of whether or not we should pay taxes, but it answers the question of what does it mean to be a Christian in a world where the government is not Christian? So let's look at at a couple of obligations that Jesus lays on us here. First, the obligation to government, and then the obligation to God. Now first, this is subtle, but notice that Jesus changes the question a little. They come up and they ask a question, is it lawful for us to pay this tax? Is it okay? Is it allowable? Would it be a sin for us to pay this tax? But then Jesus comes, and he doesn't say, yes, it's lawful. He says, render it to Caesar. And that word for render is a specific word that's used to to pay a debt. So he doesn't only say, yeah, you're allowed to pay that tax. He says, you actually owe it. You owe a debt to Caesar. Now, yeah, you don't like Caesar, Yeah, Caesar is wicked and godless, and yeah, it would be better if there weren't kings claiming to be God. That's all bad stuff, but you owe him something. As much as you think he's illegitimate, as much as you think he shouldn't be here, he still provides for your defense. He builds some of your roads. He establishes order in your land, and that all costs something, so pay him what you owe. Pay him what's his. And he says, and the way that you know that it's his is, is look at the image. Look what's stamped on it. This coin has the image of Caesar stamped right on it. It's his. If something's got your image stamped on it, that belongs to you. So this is his coin anyway. Just give it to him. And they might push back with, but Caesar does horrible things with it. He oppresses us with it. And Jesus says, you owe him this coin. Just give it to him. So this means for us that as Christians, we owe a debt to civil government, even when it's wicked civil government. Paul unpacked this statement in Romans 13, if you want to turn there. When when Paul wrote Romans, there was a new emperor that was in power, a guy named Nero. And and if you didn't like Tiberius Caesar, you're certainly not going to like Nero. He was never a good guy. He was perverted. He was a sexual predator. He was was murderous. He kicked his pregnant wife to death. He, He murdered his mother. He was a bad guy all the way to the core. And shortly after the book of Romans was written, his personal corruption overflowed into public corruption, which always happens, and he started persecuting Christians. And and he would do it in brutal ways. He was known to even impale Christians vertically on a stake, dip them in wax, and then use them as big candles to light his dinner parties. Uh, He was an idolater. He demanded that people worship him. He called himself the eternal one and the sacred voice. And this guy is leading Rome, which later on in the book of Revelation is pictured as a great satanic empire. So that's their government. 
And then Christians had no political power at all. They couldn't. They, they were totally disempowered. There weren't Christians in government for a long time because if you didn't worship the emperor, you weren't in. You didn't do your civic duty. You were on the outs. There was a lot of stuff you couldn't do if you refused to, to worship the emperor. Nobody in high places was on their side. And this is what Paul writes to these Christians about their relationship with civil government. In Romans 13, verse 1, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now imagine reading this in Rome under Nero. He's a murderous beast. And Paul says, true. And God put him there. So be subject to the governing authorities. He says God's appointed those authorities, and if we resist them, we are resisting what God has appointed, and he says that we will incur judgment. Now we, we hear that and we say, okay, so, so we, we obey the good authorities, right? But Paul wrote it under Nero. He says, God's put the authorities in place. He, he says it three times. He says, there's no authority except from God. The authorities have been instituted by God and that they are what God has appointed. He's repeating something that they knew to be true. The book of Daniel says in chapter four, verse 32, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. So as Christians, we're called to submit even to bad governments because God put them there. And in paying taxes, we are being on the side of what God is doing in history by establishing that government. So Paul says, give them taxes, give them revenue, and also give them respect and honor. So our default position toward the authorities is that we submit, we, we comply, we obey, even when the people in office are scum, even when the taxes seem wasted, even if we think that the government is illegitimate, the, the Jews certainly thought that too, even when we disagree with their decisions, we submit. And Paul's teaching in these chapters overlaps all over the place with the teachings of Jesus. There's no conflict between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul. And listen to what Jesus taught in Matthew 5.41. He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And he was talking about a specific practice here. Under Persia and later under Rome, government officials who were carrying heavy things, usually like the mail, would, would force an able-bodied person to carry that pack for one mile. And they could do it at any time. They could walk up and they say, I want you to carry this. You're carrying it one mile. And you had to say yes to that one mile. And obviously the Jews hated that. They didn't like the Roman occupiers. 
And when, when someone whose government seems like it's illegitimate, illegitimate comes in and tells you what to do, you hate doing that thing. And so if they carried those packs at all, they would do it begrudgingly. But Jesus didn't say, fight back against Rome when they ask you to carry the mail. He said, carry it twice as far as they ask you to go. So this means that Christians are not people who by default are quarrelsome with the government. We aren't scofflaws, we aren't anarchists, we aren't subversives. Now some Christians would have viewed submission to the state as totally incompatible with the lordship of Jesus and their freedom in Jesus. But Christ and Paul alike said, not only can you submit to the authorities, you should. You actually owe that to them. So we're called to be respectful of the authorities because they're God's ministers. We're called to be thankful for them because they do serve a purpose. We're called to be eager to gladly submit to them and to flex as far as we can to do so because God put them there. And also, if that's not enough of motivation, in verse 4 in Romans 13, it says they do have weapons. So obeying them is also pretty wise. It, it works in our favor. And also, we pay our taxes. Not more than we owe, but all that we owe because they do fund the legitimate functions of government. And even though we could all find plenty of ways that that money gets wasted, I'm sure the Romans could too. Making candles out of Christians doesn't seem like a good use of taxpayer dollars, but, but they were still called to pay their taxes. And so Jesus' answer to the lurkers first is give to Caesar what you owe him. Give him what's got his image stamped on it. When the Westminster Catechism attempted to sum up all that is required of Christians and their demeanor toward authorities, it said this. It says, the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior. Prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, Fidelity to, defense, and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love so that they may be an honor to them and to their government. It's a high bar. We're called to be people who don't go to war against the government. We can speak and we pray and we can protest and we can vote and we can organize but we aren't the people who resort to violence against the government. We don't do that. We don't do it on the left and we don't do it on the right. And so if we're attacking police during a protest downtown, or if we're attacking police in the Capitol on January 6th, we're doing what Jesus said not to do. And if the words of Jesus ruled out the, the nationalistic zealots that would attack Roman authority in a land that was actually rightfully the Jews, and his words also rule out nationalistic zealotry that would attack you know, the capital here in a place that isn't the promised land. Now again, none of this is a criticism of peaceful protesters anywhere. Peaceful protest is good, and there is a real sense in which gathered church services are weekly peaceful protests. I do peaceful protests for a living, so this is not being against peaceful protests, but when we're breaking the windows, burning the buildings, assaulting the officers, and then getting inside the Capitol and praying a prayer in Jesus' name? We're not acting in Jesus' name. 
So at this point, the Sadducees, they hear, yeah, give taxes to Caesar. They're hearing this and they're saying, sweet, Jesus is one of us. He's on our side. He's part of our party. He said that coin has Caesar's image on it, so give it to Caesar. So we do that. We give it to Caesar just like we thought we should do. Jesus is part of our political party. That works for us. But that's not all Jesus said. Verse 25, it says, He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There are a couple of images here. One is the image of Caesar that's stamped on that coin, but the other is the image that's stamped on us. Genesis 1.26, when God created us, it says that God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So just like a coin has Caesar's image stamped on it, and because it does, it should be given to Caesar, we have an image stamped on us. So we should give to God what is God's, which is our whole selves. So sure, give, give Caesar his money, give the government honor, but only give God your whole self. And give Caesar the stuff that's rightfully his, some money, some honor, some loyalty, some patriotism. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But we're stamped in the image of God. So this means that we belong fully and ultimately to God, not the government. This means that our ultimate allegiance only goes to God. And this was world-shattering because Caesar thought he had unlimited power. He was the divine son of God. He was the high priest. He was to be worshipped, and and his word was law. But here's Jesus, the true son of God, saying you can't give to Caesar what's rightfully God's. That's not his. So remember, there were two meanings of this coin. One meaning of the coin was the authority of Caesar, and the other meaning of the coin was the worship of Caesar. And Jesus accepts the authority of Caesar. God put him there. Give him the coin. It belongs to him. But Jesus rejects the worship of Caesar. Because worship doesn't belong to the government. It only belongs to God. Caesar isn't God. The government's not God. The government is not ultimate. And we're called to give to God what we owe him, which means everything. He gets our absolute obedience. Because we have his image stamped on us. We're his. The worship can only go to God. So this means that we can only, as Christians, expect God to have ultimate power. Sometimes we expect that of the government. We want the government to have, like, the attributes of deity, that they must know everything. They must protect us from every danger. They must protect us from every ill and solve every problem, bail us out of every bad situation. And then there's rage when our deity fails to deliver. And this also means that the state can call us to obey and we go as far as we can in obedience to the state. But when the state asks us to sin, we say no. Because we answer to a higher authority. 
the power and the authority of the state is limited because Caesar isn't God no matter what the coin says. And this belief is a big reason that many of the early Christians were persecuted and put to death because these these early Christians, they talked politics all the time. They had this one really offensive political statement that they used to make, and that statement was, Jesus is Lord. Now we hear that and we think, that's not a political statement at all. That doesn't sound offensive. And I think the reason that that, for that is because we talk about how Jesus is our own personal Lord and Savior. He's a personal Lord. And a personal Lord isn't offensive or troubling to anybody. And now Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior, but he isn't just a personal Lord. He's actually Lord. He's actually King. He's actually God over all things. He reigns. And if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is God, then that means that Caesar isn't. Jesus rejects the sovereignty of the state. And he asserts God's sovereign rule over everything. If Jesus is Lord, then he is Lord over every earthly government, whether they believe it or not. If Jesus is Lord, then then when the law of Jesus and the law of government conflict, we follow the law of Jesus. Jesus really is king. He really is God, no matter what the authorities say. Scripture reveals this. Revelations 19.16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Romans 14.11 says, For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow down to me, every tongue confess to God. Matthew 28.18, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he isn't just your own personal Jesus. He's Lord over everything, which means he has authority even over Caesar. He's a higher authority than any human government, and to say that would have sounded like treason back in the first century. So Jesus calls us to go as far as we can, go the extra mile even to submit to earthly government, but there's a limit. There are a lot of people in life that we're supposed to submit to, but submission to a human leader is never absolute. Because absolute allegiance only goes to God. We don't owe that to Caesar. We need to render that to God. Because that's what worship is. Worship is absolute allegiance. So if, if God and government truly conflict, we choose obedience to God. 1 Peter 2.17 says it this way. He says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. God takes priority over the emperor. There's a higher respect. There's a higher honor given to God. In the times when Caesar and God are in conflict, the call in our lives is to fear God and to obey him because God's image is stamped on us and we give to him what's rightfully his. It's a sin not to pay our taxes and to hold back from the government what we owe them, but it's also a sin to hold back anything from God that we owe him and we owe him everything. Jesus says that we give God our ultimate allegiance and we give the government conditional allegiance. We try real hard. 
We try real hard to be good citizens. We are not after trouble. But when we have to choose, God gets the ultimate allegiance. So these guys hear this and they're like, what side is Jesus on? I mean, at first the Sadducees are hearing, yeah, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And they're like, yeah, exactly. And then he says, and give to God what's God's. And they're like, well, everything's God, so I, I don't know if he's on our side or not. And then the zealots here give to God what is God, that God is ultimate. And they're like, yeah, God is ultimate. So, so he's, maybe he's one of us. Nobody knows which side Jesus is on. They don't know if they're supposed to throw a big party for Jesus or if they're supposed to kill Jesus at this point. Jesus comes and he cuts right through both political parties. Because Jesus isn't a subset of our political ideology. He's not a partisan hack. He's not undiscerningly choosing a side and saying everything that that side says is right and everything the other side says is evil. He transcends their ideologies. He doesn't check in to see if the party would agree with his words. He actually is above that. And that's what it means to show no favoritism, just like the insincere lurker said that he does. And for us, when, when we as Christians are undiscerningly loyal to a political party or to a political leader, when we back them 100%, no matter what they do, no matter what they say, we're giving to Caesar what should only be given to God, which is ultimate allegiance. When we always believe the words of what someone says because they're on our side politically, and then we always immediately dismiss what the people on the other side say, we are saying that there's inspired, infallible words being spoken. And those words are coming from a political ruler or political party. And this is just what happens when we remove God from his place in our lives. When we remove God from the throne, something else always applies for that position. And often it's politics. And our political ideologies on the throne tell us what word is true. They tell us what justice is. They tell us who we are. They give us our identity. And that's one of the reasons we get so angry and defensive about our politics, because they've become our God. When we start to doubt the infallibility and the inerrancy of God's word, we find another word that we will say is infallible and inerrant. Everybody's got a word somewhere that we say will always be true, and we're either going to take the word of God as always true, or something else will apply for that position, and we'll take the word of our political party as always true. We'll unpack that a lot more next week, if I haven't been run out of town. Um, but, but I think it's important for us to see that some, some politics is good, some involvement in politics is good and necessary, but we are called to give Caesar only what is his, and to give God our ultimate allegiance. Maybe we're starting to like feel the ways that we fall short of this. We're, we're recognizing that something else has become God, and maybe we've even been false worshipers. So what's our hope? Well, our only hope is not in politics. Our only hope is in Christ as our Savior. When, when Jesus Christ saw the sins of the world, he saw that burden, and it compelled him. He, he took on himself a burden that he didn't have to bear. It wasn't just for him to bear it. And it was a far worse burden than a Roman pack full of mail. He, he carried the cross. And he carried it for more than a mile. He carried it to Calvary. He carried it to death. 
And when he did that, he put to death the sin and the animosity and the idolatry of all who would confess their sin and trust in his redemption. And he offers that to us. If we're willing to turn from our sin, from our unbelief, from our idols, whether they're political idols or some other form, we're willing to turn from those things to believe in him. He promises that if we confess those things to him and cast those things on him, that he paid the price for our sin on that cross and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If we'll turn to Jesus and make him our king, make him our ultimate, if we'll receive the forgiveness that he offered us on that cross, then he will give us that pure and total forgiveness. He'll give us his righteousness and he'll give us everlasting life in the kingdom of his father, which is the only true and ultimate and perfect kingdom. So the call on all of us is to believe that gospel and to believe it as ultimate. Let Jesus be God. Let Jesus define us. Let Jesus speak to us in fallible words in his Bible. Let's hear from him and worship him alone and then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Let's pray. Well, Father, we confess two sins to you today. We confess the sin of making government God, and we confess the sin of rebellion against the government. We confess when we, we make it God, when we expect it to solve all of our problems, when we give ultimate allegiance to it, when we demand salvation from it, when we lose our hope and our joy because of how things are going there, we confess that we've given to Caesar what is God's. We also confess that, that we haven't given to Caesar what is Caesar's. While, while it's right for us to speak about injustices, so often we rebel against inconveniences. While it's right for us to plead the cause of those who have no voice, we often plead only our own cause. We don't give honor to whom honor is due. And we live like scofflaws instead of loving our neighbors. So, Father, we, we confess these sins to you. Our sins are left-wing and right-wing sins. So we thank you for the Savior. Thank you for Jesus becoming obedient to death, even death on Caesar's cross, so that we might render to God what we owe him, which is all of ourselves. Thank you for the, per for the forgiveness that Jesus purchased on that cross. And Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make us people of truth and grace, who speak truth, who are willing to disobey authority when necessary to render to you what is only yours, but also who submit and flex and obey in remarkable measure because we're not looking out just for our own interests. So Father, do these things in us. Make us a united church in a world divided. Be the ultimate for us. Be the only one we give our ultimate allegiance to. Be the only one whose word is, is pure and infallible. Be the only one whose voice supersedes all other voices. And make us people of joy in a world that doesn't know it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.